The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Well, it's my privilege to share with you from Paul's letter to the Colossians. So if you can open in your scripture, uh, you're streaming online, welcome. Uh, This is not uh, from your current series, but this is from a series we did this summer, chapter 3. Going to read the first Uh, 11 verses of chapter 3, and then pray for our time together uh, in this rich passage from Paul's letter to the Colossians. This is God's word. May by his grace and through his spirit, our ears hear what the spirit is saying to us this morning. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, purity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. (coughs) Excuse me. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Father, as we celebrate new life through our union and communion with Christ, I do pray, Lord, that both for me and for my friends this morning, We would not only hear anew the good news of a new identity we received through faith in Christ and a new course to follow and a new destiny to which he brings us to, Lord, we would by grace grow into this reality, even today, through faith in the one whose name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. In 1879, the USS Jeanette was captained by Lieutenant George DeLong. Where's the camera, by the way? I always like to acknowledge the streamers. Oh, good. Great. There we go. Glad you're watching. We have some people that stream faithfully, including some students of mine. I'm a a high school teacher as well as a serve as a a bivocational lead pastor. And... uh, they will regularly interact and kid me about my sermons on Monday. So good for them. In 1879, Lieutenant George DeLong, an Arctic explorer, set out on an expedition to sail to the North Pole, seeking to reach it by ship by the Pacific Ocean through the Bering Strait. DeLong's entire expedition uh, goal was to reach the North Pole based on a single map. Now, he was a 
recognized and noted Arctic explorer. So his decision to follow this particular map is crucial to the story. The map he was given suggested there was a thermometric gateway that had been produced by the Pacific Ocean, warmer than our Atlantic Ocean. This gateway would open up, and what you would find at the North Pole was not a sea of ice, but rather there was this fair weather passage that a ship could cross through. So Long's entire expedition was based on this map. The whole plan of the Arctic exploration of the North Pole was based on this map. The crew's livelihood, if you will, was based on this map. Sadly, DeLong discovered when they arrived at the North Pole that the map was completely inaccurate. There was no such passage. There was no thermometric gateway. It did not exist. Eventually, the ship was stranded on ice. Their expedition went from a uh, journey to explore the Arctic North Pole to a fight for survival. Sadly, half of the crew would perish, including Lieutenant George DeLong, all because they were following a map that was not accurate, that wasn't true, that wasn't based in reality. I am not an Arctic explorer, and neither are you. But what we have in common with the story is this. You and I are following map. A map that tells you and me, this is where life is found. This is the path worth taking. This is the journey worth giving myself to. In fact, our culture suggests maps, not literally, but figuratively, every day saying this is the way to live. I recently sat down with a group of millennials from New York City, introduced to them by my daughter who lives there. And what they all expressed in common, some of them are Christians, some of them are not, is this. We feel, listen for the language, trapped. Trapped. How can you feel trapped in New York City? And one by one, they began to share that what the pandemic revealed to them the lockdown, was that there are other parts of their life that have felt locked down and they're unable to move beyond. And it, in many ways, defines their life. So I said, well, tell me some of those ways. And so I wrote them down, because I'm old, and I don't remember things. Even when I do write them down, I misspell them. See if you can't identify with what these young millennials We feel trapped by trauma. We feel trapped by our family backgrounds. We feel trapped by this cultural moment. Now, you may not feel this way. We feel trapped by the global climate crisis. We feel trapped by our finances, burdened as they are, not just by debt, but by cost of living in New York City, Brooklyn in this case, and an inflation rate that seems. We feel trapped by our desires that go unquitted. We feel trapped.
trapped by our church. We feel trapped by patterns of behavior. We feel trapped. I think the crew of DeLong's ship and the lieutenant itself is a modern-day metaphor for what a lot of people in the church and outside of the church, if they're reflective and honest, feel. And yet we're given in Paul's letter to the Colossians, a key, a master key that unlocks doors for those who feel trapped. In fact, it's a key that unlocks so many doors into so many rooms of the mansion. Remember Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. Well, that's going to be a very large place, a mansion with many rooms if it's literal. But this key goes often ignored by Christians, assumed by this pastor, and therefore we don't experience it fully. And it's found in two little words that is at the heart of the new covenant found in the New Testament to which the gospel points us. We read them several times in the passage. In Christ. Christians are in Christ. King's cross is in Christ. Bauer Evans right now is in Christ. If you are a Christian and put your trust in Jesus Christ, you've repented from your sins and responded to the invitation of the gospel to not only believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but that he died in your place, willingly, lovingly, graciously, mercifully, as our substitute, receiving for our sins, God's just penalty. And in so doing, dying and rising again, that all who would confess him as king, all who would turn from themselves and put their hope in him, all who would say to him, Jesus, I surrender to you. Come and live in me that I might live for you. All who would follow him can be untrapped. Isn't it interesting that Paul never refers to himself as a Christian in the New Testament? Never once. Never once. That's how I refer to myself, to my students. I'm a Christian pastor. But he never calls himself a Christian. He refers to himself as a man in Christ. Christian is used by the believers in Antioch, right? That's what they're called in Acts. Some Christians were known as followers of the way, disciples. But when Paul wants to talk about the Christian life, he almost unhesitantly talks about being in Christ, with Christ, and through Christ. Not just because it's biblical language, and that's what like apostles like to do is use language. No, because it points us to a new identity, a new reality to grow into and live out of, a new destiny, and a new experience of his grace and mercy every day. So that's what we're going to look at today. I hope that interests you. And here's my first point. We do have a new identity. We're given a new identity. And we're told that in verses 1 and 2 of the passage I just read. Um, when 
we place our trust in Christ and repent of our sins. In other words, when we first become a Christian, when we turn to him in the morning. Let me read the verse again. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Paul begins in that passage I just read, verse 1 of chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ. The word translated if is, is our word for since or because. So he's writing to the Colossians who are new Christians. They're, they're baby believers. They're, they're new converts. They're, they're less than a couple years old. And he's saying, because, since, if you have been raised with Christ, then you have died with Christ. Therefore, there's a new way of living, a new way of directing, a new power at work in you, a new destiny that God is bringing you to. Union with Christ and our communion with Christ through it is a doctrine that the Colossians were taught as baby Christians. But in the church today, it is rarely acknowledged. How many worship songs besides in Christ alone can you point to that celebrate our new identity in Christ? I, I'm, it's hard to find that language. And yet 160 times Paul repeats it in the New Testament. 160 times, and that's explicit. There's times where he's talking about it where he doesn't use the words, but it's clearly in, implied in the emphasis. So if it is a doctrine like for me that I am not as familiar with or I have not heard of, this passage has good news for us because in this letter alone, of which it's found 18, 18 times, it speaks of a new identity that we have received when we place our trust in Christ, which means every day, we can live out of it by faith in ways that will not only encourage our life in him, but changes everything about our perspective. Wayne Grudem, who has written about this in his systematic theology, speaks of our union and communion with Christ like this. We are in Christ. Christ is in us, citing First Colossians 1. This is mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. We are like Christ. We are with Christ. Paul speaks of uh, this new identity in 2 Corinthians 5.17. I'm sure you're familiar with this if you're familiar with Paul's letters. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The church in Colossae in verse 2 is said to be in Christ, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So yeah, they're in the city of Colossae, but they, they exist in him too. So why is this teaching important to us? Because being in Christ gets to the core of your identity and mine, the core of who I am, the core of who we are. 
What makes you, you? What makes Bauer me? What is the one thing that has been true of you in every circumstance of your life? It's that we are in Christ. So, when I was a new believer, and this was in 1981, so right after the volcano went off and the dinosaurs died, I became a Christian. That's how old I am. And I'm there at Bucknell University reading my Bible, and I read through the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, in one year. And there was a sense in that, that first year of being a Christian, not only was everything new, but this was like fantastical. Like, I believe this stuff now. And I just remember sitting on these benches out on the ball fields and reading the Bible and like weeping and like, like this is true. I didn't understand probably most of it, but I understand enough to know like this is the word of God. But there was another sense. Maybe you can identify with this too. Is when I missed reading the Bible, I felt as if God was upset with me. And if I missed a week of reading the scripture or didn't get the time of scripture, I had an exam or project due, or maybe I was just undisciplined in my schedule, and I just wasn't giving the time that I, and I fell behind in my Bible reading, I started to be condemned. Now, we use the word legalism, but to use more accurate, it's a performance mentality, really, that I was struggling with. And then I was taught by a well-meaning pastor, not only that I should read the Bible, but that I should pray an hour a day. An hour a day. And he gave me a card with the names of God on it. It's a great card, all these full names of God. And we used the Lord's Prayer, and I was going to pray an hour a day. I remember I graduated from college now, so I'm still reading my Bible, getting through my reading plan, which I love reading plans. I still use reading plans, but now I'm motivated perhaps from a different place. And now I'm praying an hour a day. I remember being in my basement. I was living at home. My mom's yelling down at me, Bauer. You have to get out of here to get the train to get to your graduate school class on time. And I remember yelling back, Mom, don't bother me. I am praying an hour a day because I was convinced at that point that if I didn't pray for an hour a day and work through that somehow God would be disappointed in me or he'd withhold his blessing from me or there was something that I needed to do in order to earn his favor. And then I did my first evangelism class called the Gladstiding School of Evangelism. And I was told that I need to be sharing the two-question test with every person I know because you're a Christian. They need to hear the good news, which is all true. So there I am, for fear of God striking me down, standing outside of our local staples, accosting people I don't know with an evangelism presentation. They're just trying to get to their car, and I'm not letting them get to the car because i got to share with them because don't you know God will be mad with me if I don't? And then I join a robust church community. And they're telling me that God's restoring the church and it's about the church and I need to do all these different things in the church. And, and so I'm just spinning all of these things, trying to maintain God's favor and approval. And when the dishes drop and the balls drop and I feel miserable and I get condemned, I don't believe God loves me anymore. And I needed a pastor or a friend just to say, Dower, you're in Christ. You're justified in Christ. You're accepted in Christ. You're fully 
righteous in Christ. He's in you because he loves you. And that's what Paul is telling the Colossians in chapter 3, but also throughout the first opening, the first two chapters. If then you have been raised with Christ, not literally, but spiritually, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Christ has been raised to the right hand of the Father as a vindication of his work on earth as our Redeemer, and he has received the blessing and commendation and pleasure of God in that place of the And it says we have been raised with him because through Christ the Father takes infinite pleasure in us. Isn't that good news? I hope that's good news. Because if you live out of an identity of performance, then the identity of union with Christ will, will does not connect. But if you live out of an identity of I am in Christ and Christ is in me, then when I do read my Bible or I do pray, maybe not an hour a day anymore, or I do share the gospel or I do serve in church, it's from a place of knowing he already is smiling on me. He enjoys me. It's the riches of grace. But it must be experienced individually, right? It's not just a theoretical, abstract, theological reality. Paul is calling... This is my second point. Paul is calling the Colossians, not only to believe this, but verse 2, to seek it. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So here's where we get the map, right? Here's where our identity in Christ and the scriptures that unfolded begin to provide for us a map that not only identifies who we are at the core of our being but but how we are to live we are to live seeking our king and his reign our king and his kingdom we are to live seeking him by lifting up our eyes and our hearts to him because the actuality is whatever you're seeking whatever you're passionately pursuing Whatever Bauer Evans is, has focused on is ultimately, that's at the center of my life. In other words, if Jesus is, and he is for the Christian at the core, then he is powerfully at work, mysteriously at work, and in an everyday way at work, ultimately to seek him and his kingdom first and foremost which does determine whether I read my Bible or not each day, or whether I pray or not each day, and how I use my time and my resource God has given me. Our seeking flows out of the fact that we have been raised with Christ and died to sin in Christ, this new identity, because of the grace of God. This new life grows and grows and grows within us, and so in setting our minds on him who is above, it empowers us to live in ways that 
glorifies him for the good of our neighbors here and now. Today at Crossway, they're hearing a proverb preached to them, Proverbs 12. It's a powerful illustration. One, one verse that maps onto our little series on Philemon's. Like you, we are passionate about loving our neighbors, being in their lives in a way that they would welcome, and doing so in a way that acknowledges their pain and their difficulties and the trust that's extended when they allow a Christian to share space with them. The Proverbs simply this, Proverbs 12, verse 26, one who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Verse 26 of chapter 12. So in Paul's letter to Philemon, Paul appeals to Philemon, this wealthy leader in the church of Colossae, to receive Onesimus, his runaway slave, to be reconciled to him, even in light of the property that Onesimus has clearly stolen from him, to embrace him as a brother. And Paul appeals on the basis of love, the love that they've received in Christ and the love Paul received, received Onesimus. I'm sending him with the letter. So picture this small church, Colossae. Here's Tychicus with Paul's personal letter, Philemon. Here's Onesimus, the runaway slave who was with Paul in prison and a thousand miles away. And they're reading this letter publicly to the church. Philemon, receive Onesimus. He wronged you. He sinned against you. He's a brother now in the Lord. He's a Christian, but receive him. Don't do what you can do. Receive him, be restored to him, love him in Christ. Forgive him, in other words. Our neighbors, our unbelieving neighbors, whether acknowledged or not, are trapped in unforgiveness. And we only need to ask them, how's Thanksgiving meal going? To realize how at times strained and strange these families are that are laboring under the burden of a, some. My family's all Christian by the grace of God, and we struggle sometimes to forgive one another. Believe me, it comes out in the oddest moments. Are you still nursing something I did to you in eighth grade? When I didn't let you come down the driveway on the inchworm? Really? Does that? Yeah, I'm still kind of ticked at you for that. Please forgive me. I mean, that it sounds funny, but it's funny how sisters and brothers can hold these grudges and, and think in Christ, well, it's all by God. No, no. You've got to. But when a Christian who has been forgiven by the blood of Christ and regenerated by the Spirit, and now through faith in Christ, as Christ living in, knows what it is, to forgive another, they can be a guide to their neighbor in how to forgive there, right? Through the, through the good news that they have to share, but also the demonstration of its reality. But in my church, and maybe yours too, but I know in many churches, just the mention, just the mention of a name of a Christian brother or sister in that fellowship brings a wince, brings kind of a, a, a look, says they're not reconciled. And so we have news to offer, but we're not displaying its reality when we offer it. But when we do, 
It was Easter morning. I'm about to lead the church and celebrating the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and lead them in communion. I'm driving in my minivan up to Crossway Church. And all of a sudden, I don't know what the song was, probably like in Christ alone, I start getting convicted. I mean, like harpoon conviction about two or three brothers in Christ that I clearly am angry with. And I'm saying to the Lord, you ever have this argument, Lord, Lord, I'm about to lead the people of God in communion. I've got to preach a sermon on the resurrection. I don't have time to do business with my heart and the unforgiveness that I clearly feel towards these. And he just wouldn't let me go. It's like a, a wrestler that's got their hand on the back of your neck and praised to the mat. And they're just waiting for you to tap out. And so I got to the communion and I began in my mouth and I just burst into tears right in front of my congregation. On Easter Sunday, it's our biggest guest day. And they're looking at me like, what is wrong with you? And I just said, without mentioning the names of people, the Lord on this day of Resurrection Sunday revealed to me how angry I am with some of these men in my, my former life. And I now have to repent of that. And I'm confessing it to him now, and I'm confessing it to you in a appropriate way without going in the name. But I need to follow up with them and, and just say, please forgive me. I'm, I've been you know what happens when you do that? That feeling of being trapped by your past starts to diminish. And the reality of the new identity, which we tell everybody in Manchester about, you can have a new identity in Christ free from addictions. You can have a new identity in Christ free from demonic oppression. You can have a new identity in Christ from whoever traps you. You begin to enjoy that in a way that makes your presentation to them That's what Paul's teaching them to do. So how do we do it? Well, foundationally, I think we have to take God's word portion by portion, beginning with his letter to the Colossians, perhaps, and look at how often he talks about this new identity in Christ. And then setting our minds on that, beginning to reflect on that new reality in a way that, that empowers how we live every day. So day by day, orienting our lives by God's word. But I would say to these new in Christ realities. Secondly, I think we can set our minds on this reality as we pray. Last night we were praying for our Sunday service, and one of the women uh, who was in that prayer meeting or intercessors group, she just began to pray for Crossway out of this new identity that we have since we've been talking about it, and just asking that God would refresh and reveal and empower people to receive this reality. And then even in the music we listen to, we're going to try this. I can't endorse this because we haven't tried it yet. But we have people in our church, maybe this has been your experience, that don't know the songs we're singing. And so they're listening, but it doesn't feel like they're participating because they don't know the songs as well. So beginning in January, we're going to sing the same song four weeks in a row. And we're going to call the church to consider memorizing the song so that when they sing it during the week, and then we sing it on Sunday, Christ is speaking to them in a new way. And someone said to me, well, Bauer, you like to sing. What about people who don't like to sing? What about people who don't like to sing? Well, maybe, maybe they'll learn to like to sing this song. So the first song we're going to do, it's really simple. Really simple. Is Our God Saved by Paul Belosh? Half our congregation doesn't know that song, still song, but we're just going to sing it for weeks in a row, get it so in us that that becomes our worshipful 
I think we can do that for our new identity. Last point, and I'll wrap up with this. We not only have a new identity in Christ, verses 1 and 2, with a new course to follow as we seek the things that are above. Paul says in those concluding verses that we're to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in us, verse 5, and he lists a number of very horrible pursuits. And we're also to put away, verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. And in verse 10, it says we're to put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of its creator. Here there is no Jew or Greek, but Christ is all in and all. So we have to put off something in order to put on and live out of, grow into something else. So I put on for you, and here's my closing illustration, I put on for you a new shirt that Linda picked out for me. My wardrobe in her eyes has been boring and not fitted. And so, like for years, Jacob can test this, I would wear pants that were two sizes too big. That was the style I wore. So I looked like I was swimming in hefty trash bags. And we were streaming too, so people thought like, What's wrong? You know, the belt cinched, you know, but then you got like a parachute on for pants. And then I would wear shirts that I just was in this wear everything big mood. So I wear shirts that were extra large and not fitted. So like when the fan blew, and and sometimes I mean my wife loves me and she supported me and she puts up with me. She was just laughing at me while I was up there and I said, Did I say something funny? And afterwards, she said, honey, it's your clothing. It doesn't fit you. And people recognize that. Can you change your outfit? So I said, why don't you pick out the next outfit? And so the next outfit she picked, Michelle, I mean, I felt like I was wearing what wrestlers wear, like when they're trying. It was so tight, form-fitting, you know, no room to. And I was surprised, but I was actually getting compliments for my outfits by my, my congregants. Seriously, you think I'm making this up? This is, he can tell you. I mean, it was like people noticed that I had put on a new outfit and taken off the old baggy bower clothes. I, I hated parting with them. We gave them away to the local. They were beautiful clothes, you know, insulated, L.L. Bean pants that were two sizes too big and flannel shirts like what Jacob wears, but two sizes too big. And now I'm wearing all these tight, form-fitting, you know, you can't. It made a difference. When you are in Christ, because you're a Christian, and you're living by faith with the Spirit in you, powerfully work, Christ is in you, right at work, because he loves you. That's why he's in you, because he loves you. He dearly loves you, and the Father loves you, because you're hidden with Christ in him, and the Spirit's in you as an expression of God's love. You have a daily choice. You can live out of your old identities, your past, or you can live out of a new identity. Christ is saying, take my hand in yours and let me lead you into this new identity. But like me, there are these certain triggers or moments where I'm tempted to live out of the old, right? Right to, you wouldn't do this. consumed with anger over something I'm reading on my phone, raging at the machine, 
I work with students every day and their parents. And when you give grades, parents are, and I love my students, none of them would be watching yet. Parents are want to be suspicious of your motives when you don't give Johnny or Susie an A when they've earned a D. And I can react in that moment and say, how dare you challenge my integrity? Or I can just say, I'm impressed. The reputation that I have before others ultimately doesn't matter. I can be free of this. Peter, in the epistle to the Galatians, was clearly an addict to approval. He need only be with a bunch of Gentiles and realize when the guys from James came down that he'd rather eat with the Jews and not with the Gentiles because he needed their approval from Jerusalem. He was an approval addict. And I live in a culture that is clearly addicted to approval. A new identity in Christ allows me to put that off and grow into a new reality of living for the approval of one. Doesn't that sound freeing? That sounds freeing to me. Because when I live out of my new identity, I'm able to, by God's grace, progressively, not perfectly, I grow into it. It's not an all-at-once reality. Grow into the reality of putting on my new outfit, listen for it, putting off the old, and the people closest to you notice it. They notice it, just like folks notice my new clothing. Because they notice when you're living out of the old man, out of the old identity. And now you're living by God's grace in the new. I'll end with this. All of my children, very proud of this achievement. They're all old now. They're all older. They're out of the, they're graduated. They all passed their driving tests on the first try. Isn't that exciting? Not exciting to fade in church, too, but first try. And some of their peers didn't. They failed. And they all went to the same driving ed school. It's called TDA, Teachers Driving School, whatever. And there's one particular teacher there. I forget his name. I'm just going to call him Mr. Cecilia. Sounds right. But he has a particular way that he teaches all his students to do the three-point turn or the where you have to park the car. Is that what it's called? Where you have to, like, I don't think I did one today. But anyway, it's the most difficult part of the driver's test, and it's the part of the driver's test that a lot of students fail, this three-point turn where you your car is stationary, and you have to back it into a slot, and you can't hit the curb, and it needs to be straight, right? And that's where these instructors at the um, Department of Motor Vehicles regularly fa fail people. So I'm with my oldest son on his first driver's test. They let you ride in the back, and he nailed it. He checks the rearview mirror. He puts his hand behind the headrest. He adjusts the other room, looks behind. We get back to the things that he passed, and she said, did you have... Mr. Sicipio, I did. Do you know I've never failed one of his students in 20 years of doing this? So I said to William Brickman Chapman, you're getting Mr. Sicipio. We're not doing this again. They all passed. Paul is giving the Colossians better instructions on how to drive a car. He's giving you a map for the Christian life. It begins with a new identity, with clear and specific instructions for a new course to walk, with new promises and new realities to grow into, new commands put off and put on because you are in Christ and a new destiny. When we are in heaven, we will be in heaven in Christ so that through Christ, the Father 
and the Spirit can say with him, Son, Daughter, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these hopeful, encouraging truths from Paul's letter to the Colossians. We pray for each of us that you would make one practical application that we can bring into our week. Lord, forgive me and forgive any of my friends here who make excuses for our words or actions when in reality we're simply determined to live out of an older identity. And grant us your grace, your words of promise and hope and encouragement to now I put off the old self and put on the new, but display the reality of new life in Christ to those who love us and to those you've called us to reach in the name of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.